Welcome to the No Look Podcast. I'm Rue. In celebration of Mardi Gras, on this episode, we talk with cultural bearer and keeper of New Orleans traditions, Big Chief Shaka Zulu. We discuss Voices of Congo Square, his stage play telling the authentic story of Black New Orleans, as well as the history, importance, and future of Black Carnival traditions. As always, Ugash has the interview. My brother, take it away. What's up, man? What's up, Shag? How you doing, man? How are you? I'm pretty good, man. How about you, sir? Excellent. So, yeah. So, let's uh, get right into it. Talk about the Voices of Congo Square. Yeah, Voices of Congo Square is uh, a stage production put on by um, myself and uh, my wife, Naima Zulu. The show is mainly about the African carnival traditions of New Orleans. So, what we did was we took a 300-year history of music, sound, song, and dance to tell that story live. Actually, it's a little bit older than 300 years. It's a big jump because we start off with before we got to America uh, on the continent of Africa and we moved from from Egypt all the way into um, West Africa through Central Africa all the way to the Caribbean. And when I say Caribbean, I kind of put real focus on Haiti because the Haitian Revolution had a lot to do with the Louisiana Purchase. So that was a, a very strong point that we wanted to make because most of the French that owned the land and the people in New Orleans also owned the land on the island of Saint-Domingue, which is now currently Haiti. And so those crops that they were growing, because the climates were similar, where they were the same crops, you know, as it relates to the sugar, the coffee, the rice and the tobacco. So when the Haitian Revolution happened in 1791, that destroyed a lot of crops there, which disrupted the economy in New Orleans. And once New Orleans economy was disturbed by that event, then Louisiana had to sell. And that sale was the Louisiana Purchase, which was very significant because one, it doubled the size of America. And two, it made Louisiana part of America. Because remember, before that, Louisiana was just a, a territory. So that event was very important. Um, it was over 800,000 acres of land because it was supposed to have been about the port in New Orleans, but it, it wound up being a lot of other states during that purchase. And so that was a very strong point because a lot of those Haitians after that period went to other parts of the Caribbean and many of them came to this land that we call Louisiana. Ironically, in 1811, the largest slave revolt on American soil happened in 1811 in Louisiana. Many people would say was led by Haitians. So they actually did the same thing once they got here to Louisiana, the 1811 slave revolt. So that piece was very strong in voices. And um, so now we come from the Caribbean, then we go to Congo Square which is on the National Register of Historic Places. Right. And it's what we call current day, of course, Louis Armstrong. Congo Square sits inside of Louis Armstrong Park. But Congo Square history was important because most of the black carnival traditions of New Orleans, the origin is Congo Square, whether it be jazz. And jazz is pretty much, you know, the African rhythms that European horns match with those African drums that came with this unique building called jazz that turned into um, rock and roll, that turned into, you know, basically all of the modern black music 
of America. Um, so, so Congo Square was very important. And we had a Haitian period during that time. And you know, Louisiana was always a place where, even before the transatlantic slave trade, as it relates to Louisiana, which was 1719, you know, when they started basically coming from the continent of Africa. But we want to uh, allow people to remember that even before the 1719 transatlantic slave trade, Louisiana always had a population of black people that was already here. You feel me? Right. So, so not all of us got here through the slave trade. You know, black people had a presence in many parts of the world, not just Louisiana, many years before the transatlantic slave trade. So, when we say the whole uh, black masculinity or you know, the whole Indian culture as it relates to Louisiana, the question is, who are we paying homage to? And mainly we are paying, paying homage to the indigenous folk who are already here before the transatlantic. So when the French enslaved the indigenous folk, then there was a period when the transatlantic happened and then those Africans that came here, when they rebelled, they ran out into the maroons with those indigenous folk, which were already here, you feel me? So when we say paying homage to the natives, mainly that's who we're speaking of, those indigenous folk. And when I say indigenous folk, I'm, I'm saying indigenous black folk who are who already occupied this land that we call Louisiana. So the Indian culture is a major strong point of, uh, of the production as well. So then we go into jazz, we got an early jazz period, and of course, you know, the modern jazz, we end the whole thing with the second line. So there's a lot of dances that we that we do in the production. It's about eight different pieces. It's a full two hour and eight minute show. So we got a dance like the Kalinda, uh, a dance that reflects the Haitian Revolution. We have what we call a second line dance that derived from the jazz funerals. We also have an African dance, a couple of African dance pieces in there. So we try to complete the story, you know, so it's a chronological piece of events that took place. Voices of Congo Square, the, the name came from us having a voice and somebody want to hear that voice. So we're just putting it on the platform that's in a theater setting where more than just New Orleans or Louisiana or just America, you know, we want to bring this to the world. So we wanted the world to know that those carnival traditions that, that happens in New Orleans has a historical content to it. We have a voice and we want to tell our story about our culture ourselves. And we realize that anything that's about us is not for us without us. We telling that whole story through music, song, and dance. So throughout the whole show, there's a lot of excitement. The unique thing about how we end the show is we second line out of the theaters with the audience with one big second line. So it's probably a show that has never taken place as it relates to the full story. This is the first time in history where the complete story is told through music, song, and dance. And that's something that um, I think the world needs to hear. Okay, let me ask you this now, because I, for those who don't know, you know, talk about your involvement in the culture and how does that play into you actually creating this production? The unique thing about this production is it's almost like the production is a biopic of my life. You know, you know, I come from a masculine tradition. My family tradition is still dancing. Um, before I was actually uh, doing the masking tradition as an Indian, which I've been doing for over 20 years. So 
So there's a still dancing piece in the show. There's the Indians in the show. I'm, a, I'm one of the big chiefs of the uh, uh, Golden Feather Hunters. And there's also African dance. We have a, a performing arts company that deals with African drum and dance and Caribbean dance that's called Zulu Connection. So we, we started that in ni- 1995. So I have over, I guess, 30 years of that. I mean, 25 years or more of that. So I'm an African drummer. I'm an African still dancer. I'm a Marty Bay Indian chief. My wife, Naima Zulu, is a dancer. So you have the dance part of it. And um, also I was an associate in Pleasure Club. I was in nine times. Uh, so I had that part of it. And I played with a lot of jazz cats. So, so pretty much it was a no brainer for me to just put all of the, the, the things that I was involved in throughout my life on the stage. But it needed content as it relates to uh, his, the historical part of it. It is it, well researched. Um, there's over 80 costumes involved in it. So there's uh, lighting plots. There's um, um, choreographers that did a great job of putting this piece together. My wife, my wife, Naima Zulu, is the playwright. So it's just something that um, we just felt at that time should happen. We kicked it off in, in 2015, we was the first shows. And, and all the shows have been sold out except uh, maybe one show that we did in New Orleans at the Orpheum Theater during the tricentennial. So it was on a tricentennial calendar in 2018. But the point I'm making is uh, it was very easy to be involved in the full process because it's, it's really about a story about our lives. It just happened to be all of the uh, black horn of our traditions of New Orleans. Right, now, you mentioned something, I think, uh, in your earlier statement that I, I would like to talk a little bit more about when you talked about the culture being told by people who are in the culture. I think oftentimes what happens is you have, you know, I mean, well-intentioned people who are sort of voyeuristic in, in the way they think about the culture. And so then they come and they talk to people who produce the culture they may write books they may do documentaries they may do whatever they do and oftentimes the creative process isn't done well enough that it really gives an authentic picture of what the people of new orleans are like especially the black people so i'd like to you to speak to that and talk a little bit more about that well my dad always told me that if you want to be a millionaire you need to talk to somebody that's already a millionaire versus someone who's trying to show you how to make a million dollars and they actually don't have it. So the best depiction of the truth as it relates to a cultural keeper, you know, I try not to use the word cultural bearer so much because nobody usually the bearer of good news, so I always say cultural keeper. But the practitioner, when you're doing research on something, you, you, you go to the expert and the expert is usually the practitioner or someone who's well studied in that area. So if I want to learn about the Indians, you know, what better place to go than an Indian chief who have been in the tradition for over 20 years and and have traveled and, you know, well studied, uh, well traveled. And so, you know, so that was very easy for me. And as well as the still dancing, you know, that's been in my family for over 40 years, you know, with my dad kicking it off. So that history was there. I'm initiated in those still dance societies. So as it relates to, you know, someone who's an expert on that, you know, who do you go to other than the practitioner? 
So as it relates to the drummer, you know, I've been African drumming pretty much all my life. And we have a performing arts company that's over 25 years old that traveled the world. So as it relates to uh, African and Caribbean drumming, and not just drumming African and Caribbean, we also visit those places. You know, I've been to six out of seven continents. You know, I've been North, South, East, West, and Central Africa. I've been to many different parts of the Caribbean, you know. And so, so it's just that all of the research that we needed to do, all we had to do was brush up on some of the things by going actually to those places that those dancers come from and talk to the people who live the tradition of that dance. So about 90% of the show, you know, we got the information from, you know, something that we practice. You know, it's not a show that we're doing. It's a way of life for us. You know, this is what we do for a living. So it was it wasn't hard to put that together. It just was um, very expensive and, and you know as it relates to trying to produce it but you know the moving parts were already in place because we are actually living it we're practicing it every day you know i'm sewing every day you know i'm masking every year you know i'm still dancing all the time you know i'm traveling all the time i'm going to africa all the time um you know so i'm playing music all the time so you know so i think it's very important that the authenticity of this piece is something that can't be questioned because we're the actual practitioners of it. You know, we live it. So who better to tell a story than someone who's living the story? Our conversation with Chaka Zulu continues after these brief messages. This week's episode was brought to you in part by Mr. Chell's First Class Cuts, located at 2734 South Carrollton Avenue, is the premier barbershop in the city of New Orleans. Founded by the iconic Wilbert and Mr. Chell Wilson, it continues to be the place where one can receive first class service. So today call 504-861-7530 to make an appointment. Mr. Chell's First Class Cuts, continuing the tradition of excellence, service, and giving back to the community. Now back to our conversation with Big Chief Shaka Zulu. As you travel across the globe representing New Orleans in an authentic way, when you talk to people about New Orleans, what are they asking you? And in turn, what are you telling them about New Orleans in our story? I think um, most people want to know about the mysticism, the mystery. You know, the mystery is in the which is the Hebrew cultures that come from those cultures that are very sacred. You know, it was secret and sacred at one time because now since it's a part of the music culture, it's not secret anymore, but it always remains sacred. So uh, almost everyone outside of this country um, asks, where can I go to find this particular culture? That's the first question. And what we realize about New Orleans culture is um, most of the black carnival traditions of New Orleans doesn't get put into the uh, tourism periodicals that go out about New Orleans. You know, uh, it's a lot on the food cultures, a lot on the architecture, it's a lot on the uh, the, 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 the swamp tours and all of this stuff. But as it relates to somebody coming here to get inside the, the sacred hidden cultures, of the Black Carnival traditions of New Orleans, there's no particular place that you can point to that can have a setting 
like a golden feather, like when we had the gallery, where people can come to and get the information about that culture from a cultural practitioner with an exhibit to show an example of what that person is speaking on. And that's why it was important for us to have Golden Feather Gallery, you know, where we did lectures on the history of the culture. So I'm also a lecturer. You know, I go into different parts of the world to lecture on the culture. And we, I have suits exhibited in the Netherlands, in Berlin, and uh, uh, Missouri, and uh, uh, Carolinas, and uh, all over, you know, different museums all over the world. So, so you know, I try to leave a piece of me as it relates to being an ambassador, one of the ambassadors of this culture around the world. So, um, yeah, that's, 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 that's just amazing that, you know, the amount of people that want to really know about the hidden sacred cultures of New Orleans that doesn't get a chance to get that experience once they come here through tourism. As, as the culture is evolving, and as somebody who is a, a keeper of the culture as well as an ambassador of it, what's your feelings about the future of, of all these traditions that you actually encompass in the show and cover? What, what's your take on the future of it? I think um, what's promising about this culture is you see children. And, and when you learn uh, a lot in life as you uh, travel, you'll find that in order to keep your culture alive, you have to teach it to the children. The way that you tell the health and well-being of a society by its condition of its women and children, they're the keepers of the culture. So I see a lot of kids involved, you know, and, and so that's promising. It, it only means that, you know, that kid going to grow up and become an adult and, and hopefully uh, one of the leaders in the culture to where they can pass it on to their kids. So I see it being, one, a little more innovation in it, you know, because a lot of people think that tradition shouldn't move. It should just stay the way it is. But, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about that because change is inevitable. Uh, not to say that it should change from totally what the tradition is, but in order for it to remain intact, you have to have some innovation in it, you know, because I look at the materials that we use to make suits as an example, you know, those materials that they were using in the 40s and 50s, they're not around anymore. So they had to innovate the culture to use the materials that, that are around. So, so change is inevitable. So I try not to be too critical as it relates to that, because the culture is really about the sewing and the dedication, the community, the teaching, the, the keeping of the culture, the preservation, the innovation. And, you know, and once those things are in place, uh, the craftsmanship, then I don't think it's going to go too far away from the tradition of it. But I really think it's growing, one, and two, you're finding a lot of children involved, which means it's probably going to be around for quite some time. A quick piggyback off that, actually, to talk about, because you have been somebody who had been involved in the culture, in, in addition to you know using it as a way to create commercial ventures with the culture and uh, oftentimes I, I don't think that people who produce the culture a lot of times 
don't necessarily take advantage of those opportunities while others sometimes come in and they kind of exploit those opportunities and might use somebody as the face of a product, but not so much them getting necessarily the economic benefit of what it is that they produce. So could you talk about some of uh, your commercial ventures and how is it that other culture bears perhaps can kind of leverage their credibility, if you will, to even think about doing more commercial things that would give derive them a better economic outcome for what they produce i think um it's, it's kind of strange you ask that question because um you know i get a lot of flack from uh different cultural keepers in that regard and, I, and i'm okay with it and the reason i'm okay with it is i feel like the creator gave me a gift to make a life out of it and 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 you should without giving up the integrity of what the culture represents and what it is, I feel like you should be able to survive off it, you know, because there's a great deal of time and dedication and finance that goes into presenting this culture. So what's wrong with being rewarded or benefiting, benefiting from some of the things that you sacrifice to put on the streets as it relates to culture on a yearly basis? You know, I put over five grand in a suit every year. So, you know, why shouldn't I make money? You know, but on Carnival Day, I come out, I don't charge anybody. I don't make any money off of that because I'm doing it for the sake of culture in itself. But as it relates to lectures and uh, exhibits and and even selling suits to museums to, to, for them to do exhibits, I don't think anything is wrong with that. Um, because one, most cultural keepers or exploited commercially by the producers of the culture, very few of them are actually culture keepers when, as you looked at the producers. So if somebody else can ex exploit you, why shouldn't you have the ability or the right to exploit yourself? And I hate to use the word exploit, but that's pretty much what it is, you know? So why work for somebody who's selling you than to actually work for yourself and sell the craftsmanship or the work that you produce on a yearly basis. So it's like telling a singer that, yeah, you made the song, but I can go get a record deal and the record company could sell a song, but the actual person that made the song can't sell a song. That's crazy. And that's the way the industry is set up. So I'm like, instead of going to the record uh, company to get a record deal for a song, why not produce your own song and sell your own song and promote your own song? So it's the same thing. So when people tell me that I'm selling out for making money off the culture, I think they really have it backwards, you know? I think there's a way, and there's a fine line, but there's a way to make a living off something that you use as a way of life. It just doesn't make sense to me for people to think that, you know, you're doing something that's so magnificent. That, I mean, a magnificent, extraordinary, is so important as it relates to the preservation and so innovative and so creative, but you should be broke. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I, I, I think that because you did mention something that you said exploit, I would I would go as far as saying it's uh, it's more entrepreneurial I mean, because when you think about the fact that the city itself is marketing what you and many others produce to bring people here. So for those who are actually producing it to think of themselves as entrepreneurs and be able to 
take those opportunities, whether it's to be a jazz fest or other things, in addition to other opportunities that they can create for themselves to monetize those things. I think that that is something that should not necessarily be shunned. I don't think of it as exploitation necessarily. I think of it as uh, being entrepreneurial more than anything else. saying that architecture, an architect who did a building 200 years ago and the city is selling tours of buildings that's 200 years for a fee. You know, why is nobody speaking about that architect still profiting or the city is profiting off that for 200 years? Nobody's speaking about that, you know? So it's like, you know, why when it comes to black carnival traditions of New Orleans, we ain't supposed to be entrepreneurs as it relates to that culture. You know, I get a lot of flack, but you know, I'm cool with it. Like I said, I'm cool with it. Because I understand that um, people are brainwashed about, you know, having the ability to survive off your culture. You know, for, for many years, that's the power that be made sure that you know, we were actually just doing the work and not profiting from the work. Mm-hmm. Because when we profit from it, it's almost like it doesn't leave a whole bunch on the table for them. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, man. <laughs> you know, yeah. now, in a couple of quick ones, you know, to wrap it up, I think that what is the biggest, because, because again, so many people produce content about New Orleans and um, a lot of it sometimes doesn't necessarily always hit the target. What is, in your mind, some of the biggest myths and misconceptions about New Orleans that you encounter, like from seeing what people produce or people even ask you and then you have to kind of set the record straight about authentic New Orleans, particularly black New Orleans? Well, one of the things I hear is, even when you look online, first thing we hear is Mardi Gras in First of all, we had nothing to do with Mardi Gras. We wasn't even allowed to participate in Mardi Gras during that time. So that was the name that was given to us. You know, we, we came out on, we called it Carnival Day. And, and still, most of us that are practicing the Black Carnival traditions of New Orleans, you won't see that culture in the Mardi Gras parade tradition. Uh, you know, as it relates to the French Quarter and all of that stuff, we out in our own neighborhoods. Um, uh, uh, displaying our, you know, black carnival traditions in the neighborhoods that the culture derived from. That's one. The other thing is we see that, oh, you look online, the Mardi Gras Indians paying homage to the Native Americans. First of all, when this culture arrived, uh, Louisiana wasn't even a part of America at that time. So, so when you say Native America, when it, as it relates to this culture, that doesn't apply. The other thing to it is, what Native Americans are we speaking about, you know? And when we saying that we paying homage, we paying homage to, once again, those indigenous folk who were here before the transatlantic slave trade that lives out into the, lived out in the Maroons. So when we ran to the Maroons for, for those folk to hide us, we was going to our folk, basically. So the question becomes, you know, once again, who are we paying homage to? So that's the biggest thing, because most of us that were in the culture and we brought up in the culture, it was an oral tradition. And the danger in oral tradition is when you don't document, somebody might document for you and that documentation doesn't have to be accurate. So that's the danger in it. So we have to speak about it. We have to write about it. And we have to, you know, be well studied in that area about understanding when the French arrived here in this place that we call New Orleans, we already had a culture here, you know, 
and, and, and that culture had been here for a while. So, you know, so as it relates to culture and a way of life, you know, you can't bring a culture to people who already had thousands of years of a culture. So, so that's one of the things that I find myself having to clear up. And even within the culture, you have to clear up some of those myths with some of the cultural keepers. So it's just unfortunate, but, you know, I don't mind playing that role because, you know, when you, when you live in it and, and, and travel it and see it for yourself, you know, see it as believing. So when you, when you go to Africa and see a beating system that's been in place for thousands of years, you know that we started beating from quote unquote Native Americans. When you see feathers worn in Congo and all these different places of these high priests for thousands of years, so it just gives you an example that we've been wearing bees and feathers way before the transatlantic slave trade. So it means that it wasn't a new thing for us as it relates to New Orleans. You know, our culture then had music, song, and dance, beads and feathers. So, you know, so even when you travel those places and see those, those cultures still intact from thousands of years, and it's well documented, it's very easy to know the truth, you know? And finally, if you had to sum up in one sentence, Voices of Congo Square, what would it be? A voice. A voice. Having a voice. And that's been the thing that's been suppressed throughout this whole journey. Having a voice. So voice. <laughs> to answer the question. All right. So Shaka, I appreciate your time, brother and continue to be an authentic voice, continue to do everything that you are doing, you know, to show the world who we are as an ambassador and as a keeper of our culture. So I appreciate your time, brother. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you as well. All right. Take care. Definitely. Peace. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Big Chief Shaka Zulu. Learn more about Voices of Congo Square at chiefshaka.com. Please subscribe to get the next episode of the Nola Podcast. Bugash Amu. Peace.